We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed hello sunshine i'm alexi lawless and welcome to the state of the union podcast where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red white and blue colored glasses this show will be talking MLS Cup wrap-up. Dougie Mack will join us. Uh, Boo Birds, American Soccer Exceptionalism, World War II, Nearly Normal Family, Cucho, Jude, Geo, World Cup Cities. No, not World Cup Cities. We did that last time, so I'm going to get rid of that. But so much more. First, joining me as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Masi, how you doing on this Monday, December 11th in the year 2023? It is the most wonderful time of the year, my friend. Yeah, you look very festive today. Uh, that is the sweater that we were given in Qatar uh, yep. this time last year, right? Yep. For those watching, uh, I am uh, all decked out uh, from head to toe in, uh, in Christmas regalia here. And for those watching, I'll even turn around. It's even got my name and number on the back. So, sporting the colors, uh, if you will. Um, did you watch anything, my friend? Uh, last night, another episode of Gilded Age. Uh, tonight, we've got episode two of the HBO documentary Murder in Boston. And you know what I did recently? What's that? I want to talk to you about this. Uh, I spent an afternoon in the Pueblo de Los Angeles neighborhood in downtown LA. It's the oldest neighborhood in Los Angeles, settled by the Spanish in 1781. Uh, there's all sorts of museums, uh, chronicling the history of Los Angeles, the history of Mexican-Americans. Olvera Street is the main street that runs through it. Very cool. Uh, lots of great restaurants there. So I highly recommend it. I don't know if you've ever been. but No, I haven't been. Fun uh, time. But you can you can eat and be educated and, and do all that kind of stuff. So Absolutely, yeah. Oh, nice. I, I, I know. I haven't been there. I would, uh, that'd, be, that'd be cool. All right, so I don't have anything as cool as that. Um, uh, producer Sean uh, was effusive in his praise of the new documentary over there on Netflix, From the Front Lines, the World War II documentary. Now, um, I'm, I'm knee-deep in it, and it's, it's, it's really interesting. Um, and what, what they've done is they've taken archival footage, and they've, I, I, for lack of a better word, they've enhanced it, right? So some of it is colorized. Um, a lot of it is, I guess, cleared up. And so I, I worry a little bit that dramatic license is being used to, in this case, I guess, literally color history. But the potential for distorting things exists. And it is amazing. Some of the, um, it's just the way that it looks like 
Sean and I were talking off air that it looks like it was recorded on a, you know, an iPhone or something like that. The clarity is amazing. The color is amazing. And I do think that it, that it, that it gives you, because, you know, there's tons and tons of World War II documentaries out there, but I think it gives you a, I guess a, a, what would be a richer type of look into it. But again, in the back of my mind, I'm saying, but is that actually what it looked like? And there's no way for them to know exactly what the colors were. And so I think they have to be really careful about the way that they do it. And we'll never know whether it's the editing or whether it's the technical uh, aspect of it involved, how much or little of it has been done and how much is actually changed in the process of uh, going for them. The other, th- the other thing that I watched is something called a, a, a Nearly Normal Family. It's one of these Swedish episodal types of things. A lot of kids are watching it right now. So it is dubbed, if you will, unless you want to watch the uh, subtitle uh, version out there. Um, it's pretty good. It, it's, it's pretty good crime um, type of drama that uh, I highly recommend. Um, you ready to light this candle, my friend? Let's do it. Well, we mentioned off the top of the show that uh, Doug McIntyre was joining us. So let's, let's, don't bore us, get to the chorus. Let's get right to him. Okay, as promised, we bring in Doug McIntyre, our Fox Soccer Insider. And uh, if you are listening to this right now, uh, his latest article, a U.S. Men's National Team Year in a Review, will have dropped. Always must reads. Dougie Mack on the scene, my friend. How are you doing, my friend, up there in the Great White North, uh, where you uh, make your uh, residence up there in uh, Montreal? Big, big year in American soccer, but uh, let's go right to MLS Cup with uh, the Columbus crew winning two to one initial thoughts after that uh, incredible weekend. It was an incredible weekend. It was an incredible game. I was there in Columbus. The town was, I mean, there was a sea of yellow. The stadium was rocking. I always have the broadcast in my ear um, just so I can hear what, you know, what's being said to the viewers back home. I could not hear John and Stu um, because it was so damn loud uh, at Lower Com Field. So a uh, thoroughly deserved win for Lucky Columbus. You. I Lucky thought, you, by yeah, the way, Doug. I mean, Lucky yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah, really. And, you know, to contrast that with, you know, three years ago, the crew won in the old, what they're calling now, historic crew stadium. Um, you know, in 2020, pandemic shortened season, very few people in the building. Um, this, was, this was totally different. I, I wasn't there for that one, but this was a proper final and the crew, I thought, were magnificent uh, in the game. They thoroughly deserved to win. I was actually surprised that, you know, they didn't add a third before LAFC got a second. Um, but tremendous advertisement for, for Major League Soccer. Um, and, yeah, just a, a, a thoroughly dominating performance by, by the home team. I mean, I don't think there's any question that they are deserved uh, champions of the uh, 2023 Major League Soccer season. Uh, Doug, I mentioned recently that on the pod that Wilfred Nancy has become the coach in MLS. Are you as impressed with him as everybody else is? The approach, the style of play, the results? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I got to see Wilfred up here in Montreal uh, for a couple of years, um, and he took a—I mean, he took a risk leaving. I mean, he could have stayed. He, you know, was recruited to go to Columbus by Tim Bezbachenko and, uh, you know, took a leap of faith. He moved his family. He spoke about that after the game, but he believed in himself. And, you know, he said how important it was and it is for him in his life and for his teams to show courage. That was a a word he kept using. Um, And it did take courage for him to make that move. But you saw the way that team played all year. Um, You saw the way they responded in the playoffs in particular. Um, They never changed their identity. They always played 
um, you know, a high risk, high reward sort of sort of game, and and it paid off for them. And and to see him get rewarded in that way, I I thought was 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 great. Um, he's a good man. He's a good coach. Um, I'm I'm sure that you know back in his native France, I, I would hope that. Um, you know, some sporting directors at clubs have taken some notice, but this is a guy who's really made his name in, in North America, came over to Canada to be a, a college player um, uh, at uh, the, the, one of the universities here in Montreal um, and moved up the ranks. I mean, worked in the Impacts Academy. They were called the Impact then, got the head coaching job uh, for CF Montreal when Thierry Henry left. And, you know, he's just gone from strength to strength. So Terrific guy, terrific team. You could see that his team loves him and plays for him, and that was on full display on Saturday in that match. I mean, look, this uh, this story when it comes to the Columbus crew uh, it goes well beyond this year and this MLS Cup. Uh, and it's it's I think it's going to, when all is said and done, be one of those great stories that are told about American soccer and the saving of the crew. And most of our listeners and, and viewers know, uh, know that story. I, you know, the, um, and you were at this, you were at the stadium. Um, the commissioner got booed and he's going to get booed yeah. like any, you know, uh, major league commissioner in all sports. They're going to get blamed for a lot. Some of it they might have created some of it. They, uh, they haven't. And fans love to vent their grievances and, blame people especially people in power for whatever slights they feel whether they're real or perceived this this saving of the crew i think they 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 wear it on their sleeve it is now part of their identity along with the identity like you mentioned that i think does deserve a incredible amount of respect in that wilford nancy is a romantic he plays a certain way and he's going to die on that hill and he didn't die on that hill in that they won and it came it came good this, this victim, uh, this playing of the victim that Columbus has right now, like I said, it works for them, but it is going to get get old. Um, but they have certainly earned the right now to to strut and to boo the commissioner right now. When, when you think about this Columbus team, is it possible to think about them without the saving of the crew aspect? And how long do you think that that hangs on? And how long do you think that they use that going forward? It's a great question. I mean, I think they'll, they'll use it forever. I mean, they're, they're happy to have that chip on their shoulder. It's the second time I've been to Lower.com Field. I was there for the World Cup qualifier the U.S. played against Costa Rica in late 2001. I'd almost forgotten about, you know, how close the, 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 that city came to losing that team, just, just being there for, for a couple of days and walking in the stadium to see, you know, you say that they wear that save the crew on their sleeve. They wear it on their backs. I mean, there was a bunch of, of folks with crew jerseys, you know, the yellow, the yellow shirts, with uh, save the crew and and nine, you know over the number ninety six on their on their backs and it's like man it's true like they they because they won in two thousand right after the team had been saved and um, and it does seem it, for the rest of us I think we've we've sort of moved on but the folks in Columbus haven't they're they're going to have a long memory uh, forever and re- and use that for for fuel and and they certainly were happy to you know get the opportunity to, to stick it to the the commissioner I think there's a perception whether it's real or not that you know he he the, the major league soccer commissioner don garber didn't have the team's back uh and was willing to let them leave and it wasn't the league that saved the crew it was very much the fans uh that saved the crew uh and obviously the Haslam family the cleveland browns owners coming in and, and buying that team that saved the crew so uh i think they're going to continue to 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 use it even if the rest of us have, have long since moved on uh, Doug, interesting season for LAFC. They lose the CCL final. They lose MLS Cup. They lose the Campeones Cup. It sounds like Carlos Vela is on his way out. Given what Inter-Miami have done with Messi and now Luis Suarez, do you think both LA teams, LAFC and the Galaxy, 
feel the pressure to make a big splash with their open DP slots. Do you foresee some mega names arriving in Los Angeles this offseason? I hope so, Masi. I mean, the, the league is better when its biggest markets have huge stars. And obviously, LAFC came into the league and made a huge splash in every way with their, you know, with their branding, with their fans, with their stadium. With signing Carlos Vela, I mean, that was probably the most important thing that they did. They got him uh, when he was still in his prime, maybe the back end of his prime, but uh, brought him over to be that marquee guy. Obviously, you know, if not the best Mexican player at the time, very close very close to it um and he's been phenomenal for them uh and we saw the galaxy respond by signing zlatan ibrahimovic uh in in 2018 so i would love to see a similar sort of arms race um and and see those teams you know try to outdo each other because you know we were talking about it you know media folks uh, around the game just how you know lafc or la and you guys know better than i do being based there but la is is an lafc town now and the onus i think is on the galaxy um, you know, to, to respond. But uh, I want to see that arms race as much as anybody. I think it would be great for the league. Last question before we move on to the U.S. men's national team. Uh, you're around there and, and having been at plenty of these events, a, a lot gets discussed, like you said. A lot of uh, interesting and intrigue happens at the, uh, the hotel bars and everything. Did you hear anything um, of interest relative to what MLS is looking to in the future? I know Don Garber was pretty clear uh, in terms of his uh, State of the Union type of address or state of the league type of address about not adding more designated players, uh, though he gave himself yeah. a little bit of wiggle room there. Anything on the horizon that we should be looking for either on or off the field relative to MLS going forward? You, you know, Alexi, I wish I'd heard more stuff like that. And, and every time, you know, I, th- I think, and I go back to when the U.S. won the, the hosting rights for 2026 and Don Garber said this is going to be like rocket fuel for the league and I remember sitting in his office um, a few months after that I, I wanted to write a story like well what does that mean Don and you know I asked him a bunch of different ways like basically are you going to loosen the purse strings are we going to be able to see more investment are we going to be able to see you know owners able to make the sort of moves that they want to to bring the league to the next level given this incredible opportunity um, that the entire American soccer community North American soccer community has in 2026 and I was a little disappointed. I mean, I walked out of there thinking, like, they're, they're really not willing to do that, it doesn't seem like. Um, and, and Don said as much as you said. I mean, here we are five years later, basically said the same thing. So I certainly hope, I mean, the Lionel Messi signing changed the league. Don did mention that. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, with Messi here, with the 2026 World Cup coming, I, I really, and I'm, I'm certainly not alone. I know you guys do too, want to see, uh, more investment, more superstars, more more players. I mean, uh, Giorgio Chiellini said after the game, I mean, he, he talked about how much he enjoyed probably his last game as a, as a professional 39-year-old legendary Italian defender and said that I would have loved to have come to this league earlier in my career, but the economics just didn't make sense then. You know, he could do it at, at, at 38, 39, um, but he wasn't going to leave millions of, of dollars on the table to come earlier in his career. Um, and that's something I think needs to change. Uh, you know, I, I and I hope it does, but um, it doesn't sound like it's imminent, unfortunately. Uh, Doug, piggybacking off Alexi's last question, the playoff format was very unpopular with the fans, the best of three. Um, yeah. Do you think there's a chance this was a one and done and they might tweak it again? Or you think since they make this change, they're going to ride it out for a couple more years? I know you've talked about this uh, at, at length on previous pods. Um, 
I think, and, and you've said, normally they do stick with it for a few years. Unpopular or popular, it doesn't matter. You know, they don't want to admit that there's been a mistake, even if there, there has been one. This year feels a little bit different. I, I don't have any intel. I don't know what they're going to do. I don't even know if that's been decided yet. I think it's something that will, will be determined. MLS likes to leave us guessing as to what the playoffs format is going to be in any given year. Um, but I could see them staying with it. But I also think there's been enough hand-wringing and um, criticism of the format that, that I could see them doing something a bit, a bit different. Um, I don't personally think it makes much sense to have a one-match single elimination wild card and then a three-game series and then go back to you know, three elimination rounds. That, I don't see the consistency there. I get that owners want to make as much money as possible and having as many games as possible accomplishes that. It did feel like after a marathon regular season the last few years that the MLS Cup playoffs were over uh, before, you know, before you even could blink. And I know there's some challenges there. There's a November international window. Last year, we had a World Cup uh, in, in November and December, which meant that the, the playoffs you know, had to be shorter. So I don't know if there's a way they can figure out you know, how to have a, a longer playoff um, but having a bit more more consistency, I have no problem with playoff games. I, I you know I thought the playoffs were really good, really entertaining this year, but it's just sort of weird to go from single elimination to like a longer series um, where teams are you know there's ten days between games in, in the same series in some cases. I don't think that made much sense, so I would hope they'll look at that uh, closely this off season. Well, look, Commissioner Don Garber can talk all he wants about rocket fuel, but it doesn't do you any good unless you actually light the rocket. And so 2026 coming, I think it would be a dereliction of duty and a real disappointment and failure if the league did not do big, bold things to utilize this incredible opportunity that is 2026. And what of that involves spending more money, designated players, you know, tweaks in schedule. Uh, actually, I think it should involve all of that uh, because it, 2026, yeah. as important as it's going to be, is going to come and go. And that circus is going to leave town. And if you don't grab a hold of that opportunity, like I said, light that fuse, then it's on you, uh, whether it's Don Garber or anybody else uh, out there. All right, let's transition over to the U.S. men's national team. What, a, what an insane year. When I, I was driving into work today and I was thinking back on all the craziness that has happened and how, you know, we turned the corner with the drama off the field and the, you know, the Reinas and Burhalters and the TED Talks and all this kind of stuff. And then multiple... Uh, interim coaches for this team, uh, and, but but as as much as as fun as it is to look back, and I know you're going to do that, it's also relative to what's coming, uh, and we're not just in 2026, but maybe more importantly, what's happening uh, next next summer. We just did the uh, Copa America draw. It's going to be a huge huge tournament. Uh, first off, give us a little teaser about what uh, what the article has in terms of the year in review, uh, and then maybe get into a little bit about Copa America because. I think Mossy and I uh, over here at the State of the Union believe that this is going to be a vital uh, summer of importance, not just for the U.S. men's national team in terms of the competition that Copa America provides, but in particular for Greg Berhalter. And I'll say it again, if it does not go well for Greg Berhalter next summer, it would not surprise me in the least if a change is made. Yeah, it was it was an insane year, and that's that's the, the where I started because the year started in an insane way. I mean, it was I think it was January third that we found out, um, you know, that there was an investigation uh, into Coach Berhalter into the the parents uh, of his 
uh, one of his most talented young players, who, by the way, uh, happen to be former national team players themselves. Claudio, an absolute legend, one of the greatest U.S. players of all time. Um, and it ended in dramatic fashion as well uh, with another loss in Trinidad. And it didn't cost the U.S. this time. They still qualified for a major tournament. We know that that didn't happen the last time the U.S. lost in Trinidad. Um, but they're in the Copa America. I agree with you. It's, it's going to be an, an incredible summer. Um, and I think it's going to be good for the U.S. to have some stability because they really didn't have that for much of 2023. Um, but they still managed to, to accomplish some things. Um, you know, they, they won the Nations League. Um, they beat Mexico with a tremendous performance uh, in, in Las Vegas, a 3-0 win, the, the most lopsided win they've had over El Tri um, in, in more than 20 years. And they did that with a, a, their second interim coach, as you said. And somehow that win gets overshadowed by the fact that we find out Greg Berhalter is going to be rehired as coach right around kickoff, kickoff of that game. But the U.S. team goes on. They beat Canada pretty easily, a Canadian team that had, that had finished first in World Cup qualifying just a year before. The U.S. didn't win either game against Canada in the lead-up to the 2022 World Cup. Um, but they win that game. They win the Nations League with a full-strength team. Um, and uh, they, you know, they recruit Fuller and Balogun successfully, even without a head coach at the time, the latest um, you know, prize dual national to join the team joining the likes of Eunice Musa, uh, Serginho Dest, guys that, you know, that had genuine options to play for, for other national teams and, and chose the U.S. So it was a crazy year. It was a busy year. Um, it started off in, in dramatic fashion. It ended in dramatic fashion with Serginho Dest getting sent off in that game. You know, crazy scene. So I think all, all U.S. men's national team fans are going to be hoping for um, a little bit of a, choir, a quieter 2024, but a no less successful one. I mean, you, you said it, Lex. Like, there's, pre there's real pressure on this team to perform on home soil. It's a manageable draw that they got for the Copa. I know you guys have talked a lot about that. Um, but that doesn't mean anything when the, when the whistle blows and they're going to have to perform. And, um, and yeah, I mean, what's the measure of success for this team? Is it the semifinal? Is it, you know, if you play Brazil in a quarterfinal, you know, and, and it's a respectable loss, is, is that looked at as, as progress? All those questions are going to be answered in 2024. Um, but it was nice to put a cap on, on 2023, and, and it really was an, an insane year. And I'd almost forgotten. I mean, when you start at the beginning and go all the way through to the end, I mean, just I don't think we're ever going to see another, another 12 months like that for the USMNT. Mossy, I know you love a uh, Dougie Mac hot take, right? And so uh, he, he had a pretty hot take uh, a couple of weeks ago. And, and I'll preface it by saying I agree with him in that there should be opportunity and there should be no sacred cows as good as this group is, and I've said it before on the pod, as group as this generation is individually and collectively, there can be changes. And if the opportunity to upgrade exists over there, uh, nobody should be off the table. Yeah, Doug, I read your piece and you talk up the acquisition of Balogun, but then you go on to say that him and Pepe are going to battle for years to come. And that dovetails with a tweet you sent out after Pepe scored that stoppage time winner for PSV against Sevilla in the Champions League, in which you suggested that a goal like that could propel him above Balogun and into the starting role for the U.S. So you don't think there's a defined pecking order there right now. You think Balogun and Pepe, that is an open competition over the next two, three years for the U.S.'s starting center forward job. Of course, of course, Masi, it, it has to be. I mean, look, we knew that coming in, Fuller and Balogun was going to get every opportunity to start. And it's actually pretty interesting. Like, the, his first match, he started against Mexico in a continental semifinal. Um, you think of some of the legends of, of this program. Landon Donovan, Clint Dempsey, 
Christian Pulisic, for most people, probably the top three U.S. players ever. None of them started their first game. They all came in off, off the bench. Balogun has started every game he's been available for um, so far, I, I believe. He started all six games uh, under Greg Berhalter, um, and he's done well. He's been good, but he hasn't been great. And, um, you know, that's not a slight on Balogun. He's a fantastic player. Uh, the U.S. team is really lucky to have him. But he doesn't start indefinitely forever, no matter what. It's going to come down to performance. And, you know, I, I'm not saying that the goal that Pepe scored uh, in, in, you know, to put PSG in the Champions League uh, knockout stage for the first time in 16 years. This is a, a you know, club that's won the European title before, a legendary club. Um, but, it, but it helps. And if you look at his entire body of work, all he's done... Um, since the World Cup, since not making the World Cup team, is score goals, whether it's for the U.S., whether it's for PSV. Um, you know, he's playing for Groningen last year, obviously, in the, in the Dutch League. I mean, his stats are insane. So I don't know if you saw this, this tweet, Masi, and I'm gonna, I brought some receipts, so I'm going to check my notes here. So uh, <laughs> Fuller and Balogun, uh, he has, let's see, Balogun has four goals in 12 league gun games this year. He's got one goal in his last nine games for club and country. Ricardo Pepe in 235 minutes this year for for uh, excuse me uh, for PSV in UEFA Champions League qualifying in the Champions League group stage and in the Eredivisie he has six goals in 235 minutes that's a goal every 39 minutes right by contrast Balogun is scoring about one every what is it about a goal every 190 minutes in France's top league I know we made a big deal. He's the first scorer to uh, U.S. player to score 20 goals in a top five league. You know, the French league is, 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 is good, but it's pretty recently that we've been talking about, you know, the big five in Europe. It was always the big four. And for me, Ligue 1 is still a distant, a distant fifth. Balogun is not even, he's not the top scorer on his team. He's got three players on his team ahead of him with more goals this year. Um, two of them aren't even strikers. So again, you know, you don't get to be the starting striker forever. And, I, and actually, I think when you look at what Pepe's done, even with the U.S. team, five goals in his last eight games. He had five goals off the bench. What did Greg Berhalter do in the last game of the year? He started them together. So I think he's already, um, you know, he, he, there's already a desire to reward Pepe for his, his production. Um, and a goal like that for, PS, for PSV, I just think, like, He's doing everything he can. Bellingham's not playing in the Champions League. Pepe is. He's hardly playing for PSV. He's got Luke de Jong ahead of him. He's a 33-year-old veteran international player, former Barcelona striker, all that. Pepe hasn't started a game this season for, for PSV, which I think is incredible. I thought for sure there'd be some squad rotation. The Eredivisie would be getting some games. Um, but it's one thing to come in for de Jong late in the game. Uh, PSV is an absolute wagon. They're destroying that league. Uh, Pepe's goals have been, you know, late in games when he's come on. It's the it's a end of a blowout. He's getting a goal from the penalty spot. You know, that's not a knock on him. He's doing what he can with the time time he gets. And Lex always talks about seizing the moment. Um, and what have you done for me lately? Like, what else can Ricardo Pepe do? He comes on as a sub in the Champions League um, and scores on the road in Spain against a good Sevilla team. Um, to, to knock them out and again to put his team a legendary European team back in the knockout stage you saw the reaction on the sideline from Peter Bosch's coach from the coaching staff by the way Pepe didn't even play in the next game the next league game for PSV so you know thanks a lot for that but I just think that's the kind of goal that when Greg you know Greg Berhalter who was already noticing what Pepe was doing for club and country you know he looks at, at a player taking advantage of a moment like that um, and that's got to be something that, that he remembers where if, if Balogun, you know, continues to slump a little bit, 
Um, and there's a, you know, a crucial game, and we know the Nations League semifinals coming up in March, and Pepe's scoring and Balogun isn't. Why shouldn't Ricardo Pepe get the start uh, ahead of Fuller and Balogun? And, you know, maybe they can both play together, but I do think that it's going to be one striker for the most part, and right now, um, you know, it's really hard for me to keep to keep Pepe well, on the and, bench, and even if, you know, yeah. In fairness to Balogun, it's clear that you hate him, right. but uh, he did have two assists <laughs> this past weekend against Ren. He can impact the game in other ways, uh, Doug, but no, yeah, I hear wow. you. Wow. And th I mean, those are some impressive stats you brought to the table. I can't deny that. What you hear, Mossy, what you hear is the conductor of the Pepe train, yes. all right? Just hooting and hollering over there. I, I love it. I love uh, I love the way that you think about things here. Let's uh, Let's finish it up here. And I, 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 told, I talked a little bit about Greg Berhalter. So in your crystal ball, all right, uh, how do you think this shapes out next year? I mentioned next summer and how important Copa America is for Greg Berhalter. Do you see Greg Berhalter making it through next summer? And then if he makes it through next summer, I think he makes it through to 2026. Do you see that? And then, um, you know, we've talked a little bit about the geo situation over, uh, over in Europe, how important he is to this team. But from a club perspective, it's just not gone well. And it's, at this point, yeah. I think, untenable, and he's got to move. So the Burhalter situation going forward and the Geo uh, situation. Yeah, you know, I've, I've heard a lot that, that there's real pressure on Greg Burhalter to be successful at Copa. And, and if, if he's not, you know, he could be gone. You'd still have two years before the World Cup to get someone new and implement their ideas. I think it would take something catastrophic for Greg Barhalter to lose his job next summer. We're talking elimination in the group stage. Mm -hmm. um, or, look, there, there's levels to all this stuff, right? Like, you get to the, the, the round of 16, you lose a close, close game, you lose on penalties. That's a lot different than losing in the round of 16, you know, three or four, four nothing. So I do think it would take a, a, a really horrible result or a string of results um, to, for, 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 for Greg to go. I, I think that U.S. soccer... And sporting director Matt Crocker, they're committed to, to having Burhalter in charge through the World Cup. But again, nothing's set in stone. It will, it will depend on results. And if things really go sideways, then yes, of course, uh, U.S. soccer would have to look into making a change. But I, I just don't see that happening. Gio, regarding Gio Reyna, you're right. I mean, it's, there, there's, there's no question how talented it is. We know that. Um, but he's not really playing at, at Borussia Dortmund. And, and at some point, He's going to have to. He's going to have to move, or he's going to risk, you know, not playing with the national team. You talk about guys that have started every game since Greg's been back. Uh, Gio Reyna started all four games since Greg Berhalter's um, been, been back in charge. But, you know, does that continue going forward? If he's if he's sitting on the bench, if he's not playing, I don't know what's going on at Dortmund. I mean, I think that you know there was an illness that he had that maybe impacted his fitness, his training. But the bottom line is, is he's not he's not a starter there. Um, and there's a lot of games where he's not even coming in off the bench at the moment. So that's certainly something to keep an eye on. It, it looks like the writing's on the wall. I know you guys have talked about this too, that um, that he's going to have to leave Dortmund. And I, I don't know that that'll be in January, but um, you know, if things continue the way they are the second half of the season, I don't see there's, there's any way that he can be back in Dortmund uh, next year. All right, my friends, that is Doug McIntyre, our Fox Soccer Insider. Again, his U.S. Men's National Team year-in-review piece is dropping, has dropped. It's out there. Read it, consume it, live it, love it, learn it, my friends. Uh, have a wonderful Christmas and New Year's up there in the uh, Great White North, my friend. We will talk to you again in the New Year. And thanks, as always, for all of the work uh, that you do and for hanging out with us here on the State of the Union.
Thanks for having me, guys. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year to, to both of you. Love the pod. I'm such an avid listener, and uh, it's, uh, it's always a pleasure to come on. So all the best to you guys. I Thanks. told you, Mossy. I told you there was somebody out there that uh, listened to us. All right, well, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we got some European stuff that is going on. Okay, welcome back. Thanks again to uh, Doug McIntyre for joining us. Let's go around uh, Europe, my friend. So let's start over there in England. Which, which game do you want? Because there was all sorts of action going on. Yeah, we begin with the Premier League where Liverpool are now atop the table. They rallied for a 2-1 away win over Crystal Palace. Mo Salah and Harvey Elliott got their goals for Mo. That was the 200th of his Liverpool career. Interesting American note, uh, Chris Richards has been playing as a midfielder recently. He started this game at that sixth position and played pretty well. A lot of folks wondering if that's something Greg Berhalter might experiment with. We've talked about the lack of a suitable backup for Tyler Adams. Anytime he's out, the default seems to be this 4-2-3-1 with Gio as a 10. Mm -hmm. But there are some opponents where that's not the way to go, maybe. And so if you have Chris Richards as an option, that could be interesting. It could be very interesting. And the more flexibility that Greg Berhalter has, uh, because Tyler Adams, as good as he is, I, I... I don't know. I mean, we just don't know if he is if he's going to return, and if and when he returns, is he going to be the Tyler Adams that we that we know and love? Uh, and now this would be multiple injuries for him. So yeah, I'm I'm all for it. I think it gives uh, Greg Berhalter options, like I said, and it makes uh, Chris Richards that much more valuable because Chris Richards, we've been talking about him now for a number of years, and he hasn't quite stepped up to be the guy that I think a lot of us thought he could be and who knows maybe it ends up being because it was in the wrong position going for but an american playing regardless of where he is playing is a good thing so good for him um even in a uh, a losing effort to uh, to liverpool uh the reason liverpool are atop the table is because their win was coupled with an arsenal loss the gunners fell one nil away to aston villa completes a remarkable few days for aston villa because on wednesday they beat manchester city one nil a game they completely dominated. They outshot City 22-2. Leon Bailey, who we'll see in the Copa America, got the winner that day. John McGinn gets the winner against Arsenal. Villa up to third place. They're just two points behind Liverpool. Uh, so, you know, I've been talking of Villa as a top four candidate. But right. some folks are wondering if they could even achieve something even bigger than that. Well, first off, it's, it's incredible um, in what uh, Emery has, has done and what what this team represents. I don't think that it's a Leicester type of situation um, in that uh, I, I don't think that it's necessarily sustainable. But to your point, if they, if they finish top four, it'd be, it'd be incredible. Keep in mind that this is a team that was uh, promoted only a few years ago. And, you know, even when you think about this team and the rise of this team uh, to where they are now, literally in the uh, in the table right now. And you think of someone like John uh, John McGinn, who who scored the goal for Aston Villa to uh, to beat Arsenal. And this is a guy who came up with this team. And can I just geek out a little bit on the goal? For those that didn't see it, you will know what I'm talking about because it's kind of an evergreen thing when coaches are developing players. In that, the the more touches you take the more problematic it becomes and the easier it is for defenders to defend. And yet, in this moment, his ability to let the ball do the work and trap the ball and turn his entire body to get the shot off, all in one consistent motion and movement, that, that there is beauty in that. 
And coaches are constantly harping on quicker, 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 quicker. And part of that quickness is cutting out some of the segmentation that happens physically for a player in the game. And here is a perfect example of just a completely fluid motion. And it takes skill and it takes training and it takes ability. Um, and he showed all of that in there. And then that, it's, that it results in this goal, it just, I think it says a lot about what this club has been, what this club is now, and the stars in their eyes, rightfully so. Uh, Bournemouth went to Old Trafford and spanked Manchester United 3-0. Now you might think that I asked for this to be in the rundown so we can clown on Manchester United. That's always fun. But I want to geek out <laughs> myself here because have you ever been to the Basque region of Spain, Bilbao, San Sebastian? Mm -hmm. I don't know what's in the water down there, but they are producing a lot of top coaches. Uh, Unai Emery and Mikel Arteta, uh, who coached the two teams we just talked about, Aston Villa and Arsenal. You've got Xabi Alonso, who we're going to talk about in a minute, doing great things with Leverkusen. And then the Bournemouth coach, Iraola, who's a real up-and-comer, he orchestrates this win. So there's all these Basque coaches doing well. And if you want to expand it to Spain in general, then you bring in Pep and Xavi, Luis Enrique, Michel at Girona. But even if you just keep it to the Basque region, there's a bunch of guys doing well. How about that result, Bournemouth? Huh? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think the, the tendency is to say, let's not short shift uh, Bournemouth. But come on, the story is Manchester <laughs> United losing. And not just losing, losing badly and losing at home. And then the navel-gazing and or head-scratching of whether it's the Manchester United faithful or anybody from the outside saying, well, is this team really good? Because there's times where you think that they've turned the corner. There's times that you think that, okay, this is a Manchester United that, you know, it's, it's, it's still a work in progress, but it's a work in progress that is worth hanging around for. And yet, then they go and shit the bed like this. This is, this, this is fireable in a lot of clubs around the world. And especially in a situation where, you know, how do you solve a problem like Ten Hag? You know, I just, <laughs> I don't, I, there, I, again, I've told you this before. Outwardly, again, admittedly, outwardly, there is nothing inspiring about the man. There is nothing that says, I want to follow this, you know, this guy into the breach. And, and again, you can have that type of character and personality on the outside, but you better back it up with results. But I don't see from a, from a player perspective that they are buying into what's going, what's going on now. And I know from a Manchester United uh, perspective that they're, they're so worried about doing what they've done now consistently over year after year after year, which is make another change. And so there's this steadfast uh, resistance to doing that because no, let's let's see the let's see this out and see the course and um, not do what we did in the past and that'll make all the difference. There, there, there also is a point where it is the right thing to do to make a change. And from the outside, again, if this isn't the right right time, then I don't know when is. And their problems could be compounded in the Champions League this week. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, one more Premier League score. We want to hit Fulham. 5-0 winners over West Ham. Anthony Robinson started. Tim Ream did not, and yeah. that bears watching. He was dropped after a disastrous performance against Liverpool. In the two games without him, they beat Nottingham Forest 5-0 and now West Ham 5-0. So it might be tough for Ream to get back in there. Yeah, and for a player of his age, I mean, we all, we all know. if It actually, I think, can be detrimental, especially to a center back where you're not getting the reps and you're not in this this rich vein of form. And, you know, he came back from his, his arm injury and still 
came back in. But I'm not saying that Greg Berhalter, Berhalter relative to the national team, is, is looking for his opportunity or his chance to move on for him. But I think it might be decided if Tim, if Tim Reen isn't playing week in and week out, I think he can possibly get rusty very, very, uh, very, very quickly. And while other younger players might be able to get over that relative to, to, their, uh, to their national team play, uh, I worry about Tim Ream going forward. But uh, Jedi continues to play and play well. And look, Fulham 5 nothing. If you don't play in that game, there's not going to make, it, make a change. And the silver lining from an American perspective, as I mentioned, one of those 5 nil wins was against Nottingham Forest. Since dropping Matt Turner and putting in Vlaco Dimos, Forest have conceded a zillion goals, as Matt Doyle keeps pointing out on Twitter. So you wonder if Turner might get back in there. I hope so. Uh, I mean, if you're letting in a lot of goals, the first person you look to is the goalkeeper. And sometimes that's unfair, but it's the, it's the easiest way to make a change and to kind of send a message out there. And you know, Matt Turner has got to be sitting on the sideline going, hey, how do you like me now? <laughs> we go to Germany, where Dortmund suffered a 3-2 home defeat to Leipzig. They were victimized by an early Mats Hummels red card, played most of the match down a man. Uh, Gio came on late when they were down 2-1. Polson made it 3-1. Fulkrug pulled one back, 3-2 the final. So Gio does get a few minutes towards the end here. You know, but as we talked about with Doug McIntyre, okay, that, that's great. It's nothing, it's nothing new. Um, you know, the, the, I think the result is what is interesting and surprising to a certain extent. Um, and well done from, uh, from Leipzig now. So standings wise, uh, we're, we're, we're looking at Leverkusen at the top right now. Right. And Dortmund down to fifth. My yeah. goodness. Yeah. If you're, uh, U.S. fan, uh, you're rooting for Terzic to get fired because you think maybe he's the problem regarding Geo. So that result helps. Unfortunately, they are doing well in the Champions League, so that doesn't help your cause. Yeah, but- I don't think I don't think he's getting getting fired. And uh, who was I listening to? Oh, our our friend Eric Winaldo was uh, screaming and yelling the other day about Dortmund. And and but to to Eric's credit, talking about there's probably nobody in the world that does a better job of developing talent, but more importantly than selling that talent. And Gio is just this anomaly where it has not gone the pathway that so many others and so many other young players have gone in Dortmund. So it remains to be seen if they're able to you know, find a backdoor, if you will, to get him back on that pathway and send him on his way uh, someplace else. But you know, he is that aberration, I think. The shocking result in Germany this weekend, Eintracht Frankfurt with a 5-1 home win over Bayern Munich, which has folks wondering about Thomas Tuchel. We know how ruthless Bayern can be. Uh, keep in mind, back in November of 2019, the last season in which we covered the Bundesliga on Fox, uh, Bayern suffered a 5-1 defeat away to Frankfurt, and Nico Kovac got fired. They brought in Hansi Flick, ended up winning the treble that season. Uh, the interesting thing here is that the guy they would want to succeed, Tuchel, is Xabi Alonso who's coaching Leverkusen right now, who are atop the table four points clear of Bayern. And we know Bayern have no issue poaching their domestic rivals. But even in the crazy world of German football, Xabi Alonso wouldn't leave in the middle of the season to go from Leverkusen to Bayern. It would be the sort of thing where they would line up Xabi Alonso for next season. However, they have to be careful because Real Madrid are eyeing Xabi Alonso as the successor to Ancelotti if Ancelotti goes to Brazil. We've talked about the Ancelotti-Brazil situation from a Brazil perspective. It also has Real Madrid implications. They're going to tell him, hey, if you are leaving, let us know sooner than later so we can go after Xabi Alonso. I feel like Bayern and Real Madrid are like two guys 
standing at opposite ends of a bar, both looking at the same hot girl yep. and deciding who's going to make the move first. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't see mid-season type of move. And, and, and I'm not necessarily worried about Bayern. We've seen this movie before, right? And they're, uh, they're a game behind, too. So they still have a game in hand, Bayern Munich. They had so. a game against Union Berlin postponed. Exactly. So theoretically, if they win that game out, then they're at 35 points, one point behind Leverkusen. But still, I mean, going back to Dortmund, how far, that's a 10 and 11 points behind the leaders over there. That is a massive type of gap that is uh, be, uh, as, uh, that we see. I'll just say with Bayern, they're always going to win most of their games. They're always going to be a good team. I could be coaching and that would be the case. But you can tell if you follow them when they're operating at full potential and when they're not. And it hasn't felt right since Tuchel took over. So I, I do think there are some issues there. Obviously, if I was a betting man, I'd still think they're going to win the Bundesliga. But you know what I mean? If you follow yeah. them week in, week out, it, it doesn't feel right with I've, Tuchel. But haven't we said this? I mean, come on. Every, every year, I feel like there's a point, especially around Christmas, around the turning of the corner here, we say, eh, is, there, is there an option? Is there a possibility? And, and Incidentally, you know how uh, we all have this thing where we critique our own teams, but we don't like when other people do it? Mm -hmm. um, if you listen to this podcast, nobody's been more critical of Brazil than me. The lack of great players, quantity over quality, that whole spiel. Uh, I was on a text chain with Keith Costigan and Ian Joy this weekend, and we were talking about Xabi Alonso. And yeah. if you had a pick between Bayern and Real Madrid, where would you go? They both said Real Madrid, by the way. And the Ancelotti Brazil thing came up in passing because obviously that's why the Real Madrid job would be available. And they were both like, why would Ancelotti go to Brazil? They have no talent. They have no chance to win anything. That would be a terrible move for him. Ooh, and you bristled. You that's bristled. Where I, that's where I had to push back a little bit. I got an Irishman and a Scotsman crapping on Brazil now. That's, that's where I draw the line. I, I I mean, I made the point, it's still Brazil. It reminds me of when the U.S. women hired Emma Hayes. I read this column in The Guardian saying, why would she take that job? The U.S. women are in decline. They just went out in the round of 16. They're under 20. Teams have underperformed. And I'm thinking, it's still the U.S. women's national team. Yep. And in Nancho's case, coaching Brazil at a World Cup is still a neat opportunity, no? It, it is. But can you clarify this? Because we've gone back and forth. There is still nothing signed, right, with the Brazilian Federation. Um, it, it's unclear. The, the Brazilian, <laughs> How can it be unclear? I don't understand. They, they can't make it public yet, but the Brazilian media suggests that there, there are some agreements that there would be some penalties for him if he turned his back on Brazil. And, and not, not to go down this rabbit hole, but the latest twist in the story in the last couple of days is that the Brazilian Federation president who apparently uh, arranged this deal with Ancelotti, he's been removed uh, and somebody else has taken over on an interim basis. They're going to have an election in a month. And so that's thrown a bit of a curveball because somebody new could take over that Ancelotti doesn't have an agreement with. And does the agreement still hold? So uh, stay tuned on that. There are lots of twists and turns on that Ancelotti story. But I just want to say on Ian Joy. It's turned into an Ian Joy segment. Okay. In, in, in speaking with Ian and Keith about this, it became apparent that they're both club football snobs. Oh. You know, the type. I mean, this Tell was me something I don't know. This was a tweet that Ian sent out at the end of the last international break. As we welcome back club football, it makes me realize how much international football is getting in the way of enjoying what we really want more club, less international games! Exclamation point. So that's his perspective. Got it. You know Got what it. I mean? So uh, speaking of Real Madrid. Mm -hmm. 1-1 uh, draw away to Betis. Jude Bellingham scored again. Make that 16 goals in 18 games in all competitions this season. I mean, arguably the best player playing the game right now. And I say arguably because there's, there's a lot of good players. But And the reason why I, I say it in that way is because for those that have listened week after week after week, we've been saying, well, this 
this can't continue. This, this is just some crazy vein of form that he has found and it's going to break. And it hasn't. And maybe he is demanding that we look at him relatives to the Mbappes uh, and the others. Now, Real Madrid drawing opened the door for Girona to reclaim first place, which they did courtesy of a 4-2 away win over Barcelona on Sunday. This was a fantastic game. Girona looked the part of a, of a big-time team. They, they took everything Barcelona threw at them and still came out on top. Stuani with the clincher and stoppage time. Uh, boy, Girona, I know we talked about this story weeks ago. We've kind of left them alone, but they are still chugging along in first place. Could this actually happen? Could this be the Leicester of La Liga? I, I hope it is because I think La Liga needs it. Um, and, and again, I'll go back to what I did with the Manchester United thing. So if anybody's going to have a long leash, it's going to be Xavi, right? Right. So how long is it? Yeah, you wonder. <laughs> uh, you know, listen, uh, they... Again, it, it shouldn't be overlooked. They uh, won their Champions League group and are off to the round of 16 there. And they've been knocked out in the group stage the last two seasons. So that counts for something. Sure. Um, but yeah, very disappointing in La Liga. They're in fourth place. They're seven points back of Girona. Uh, so we'll see. If they, if they fall any further there, uh, there's going to be some questions about him for sure. Obviously, Xavi's a, uh, a legend. And I'm not saying he, he didn't deserve it, but he certainly got the benefit of the doubt. And it was almost kind of preordained that this was going to happen and the anointing of and the return of him. Um, but his connection to that team is, is obvious and longstanding. You mentioned Xabi Alonso. Is, if, if, if Barcelona's open, is that even a possibility or is it just so, he's he, he just not associated with that and therefore it would be beyond the pale? It's tough. Uh, he has so many big clubs that he played with and has a strong identification with Real Madrid, Bayern Munich, Liverpool, that I feel like he'd gravitate towards one of those first before he would ever think about Barcelona. That's just my sense. You really think that there's the, uh, the loyalty or, or just the optics of it from a Barcelona standpoint is what would, I mean, would Barcelona ever want him as a coach? I think they would be more open to it than he would, if that makes sense. Because he, you think it's a, a tr an honest or he's just scared that he's going to get a lot of shit for doing it. Scared that he's going to get a lot of shit for doing it. <laughs> amazing. Amazing. All right. Well, stranger things have happened. Uh, where should we go over to uh, Italia? Yes. Uh, Juventus, 1-0 home win over Napoli. Gatti with the only goal. Wesson McKinney started again. Timmy Weah not quite back yet. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, Juventus right now, where, where, where are they standings-wise? They're at second place, two points behind Inter. The, the story is... AC Milan suffered a 3-2 defeat to Atalanta. Luis Muriel with a stoppage time winner. Pulisic and Musa both started. Pulisic got an assist on a Jovic goal. But this defeat means Milan are drifting. It's looking like it's going to be a two-team race between Inter and Juve. Right now, Milan, nine points back of Inter and seven points back of Juve. They're in third place. Yeah, so that's, that's too much. That, that's too much for Milan to make up. So, you know, we got the race. Like you said, Inter-Juventus. And they'll go on their... Uh, their Christmas break and then started up next year. I, so I mean, again, dissecting those standings there. I, I, because I'm just, I'm trying to figure out what is sustainable for all of these, all of these teams. And we know the winter comes and the new year comes and the mentality and the dynamic sometimes can change, but I think it's going to be neck and neck all the way down to the last couple of games when it comes to Inter and Juventus. I don't think Milan's going to be, or anybody under that, you know, Romas and Bolognas, although 
Um, shout out to Bologna for even being in the conversation. Sean Sullivan's already told me they will be in this rundown. Uh, he wants to get him in there in one <laughs> no of our next couple of uh, podcasts. But I, I did mention Pulisic with an assist. So he keeps I mean, he on. just kind of crossed the ball over <laughs> and it went through 17 people and then got to the, <laughs> the other guy. So we're being very generous. But, you know, he gets, he gets the credit. Fair He's enough. on the field. All right. We transition to match day six of the UEFA Champions League. Uh, Tuesday... PSV host Arsenal. Now, this is meaningless because these teams are locked in one and two in the group. But from an American perspective, that might mean Ricardo Pepe starts. We, we talked with Doug McIntyre about how he's doing a great job as a super sub but not getting any starting opportunities. This is a, a chance here where I wouldn't be surprised if he starts this game. I, I think he will, and I, and I hope that he does. And if, you know, when we were talking to Doug, it's all fine and well coming off the bench and scoring goals, but it's a different thing. And while, they, while, while Berhalter has played them together, there might come a point where he actually has to decide on one or the other and who is the best. And now it's a different type of dynamic and, and pressure uh, on him up top. But if he can continue to score, and especially against this Arsenal team and what it is, I know it's a meaningless game, but it's still, it's still Arsenal. Um, and if he can be backed, but are you, so you're saying he possibly could start because it's meaningless. Correct. Yeah, I guess, I guess. But that takes a little of the shine off, though. Uh, Manchester United fighting for their lives. They can't catch a break. The situation here is... Oh, poor Manchester United. Okay. uh, They host Bayern. Copenhagen hosts Galatasaray. If there's a winner in the Copenhagen-Galatasaray game, United are out, that team goes through. So United need a draw in that game, and then they need to beat Bayern. The one bit of good news you thought was that Bayern had already clinched first place in the group, so they might blow off this game. But coming off a 5-1 defeat to Frankfurt, there's no way Thomas Tuchel can afford to do that. So Bayern are going to play this straight up and put their strongest lineup out there, I would presume. So that certainly hinders United's chances of doing what they need to do in that game. So you are of the belief that a team that has nothing on the line and no consequences on the line is easier to beat than a team that is under incredible amounts of pressure. Well, it depends on the lineup. Like, there's a chance. Let's say Bayern were cruising along, doing well. There was no pressure on Tuchel. They didn't get smacked this past weekend. I think there's a pretty good chance Harry Kane would be rested for this game because they don't need it. Now I expect to see Kane out there. So it affects the lineup, and you, you might be coming up against better players, no? I guess, but I, I just... I, I push back a little on the mentality that a team that has nothing to gain or nothing to lose um, is, is easier to play against. I think it makes you play freer, makes you play, play more open, and it does obviously alleviate a lot of the pressure and therefore the risks that you take that you wouldn't in a regular, in a, in a situation where you were under pressure and needed a, a result I think actually make you more dangerous. Interesting. Times. Uh, also, this week, Group F reaches its dramatic conclusion. Uh, Dortmund hosts PSG. Newcastle hosts AC Milan. The situation here, Dortmund have already advanced. They need a point to finish first in the group. If PSG were to win at Dortmund, they not only advance, but they would advance as group winners. However, if PSG draw that game and Newcastle beats AC Milan, Newcastle go through. If PSG lose at Dortmund, and then the winner of the Newcastle AC Milan game would go through. So a lot going on in this group still. I have, I, I don't, you confused me. So, <laughs> so PSG can not go through? Yes. That's, I mean, so you bury the lead there. Okay, so PSG could not go through depending on their result and the result of Newcastle-Milan. 
Yeah, I mean, they have destiny in their own hands. If they right. win, they're through. But if they stumble, that would open the door. They could then be overtaken. Well, we just talked about the uh, the problems with uh, with Dortmund over there. So that'll be a, that'll be interesting. Though Newcastle coming off a bad loss yep. of Tottenham themselves. So we'll see how this group plays out. So that, right. that's what we got in the Champions League. That is it for this segment. So that's Tuesday and Wednesday next. Uh, 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 what is that, tomorrow? Yep. Tomorrow and uh, Wednesday. All right. Uh, enjoy the uh, UCL. Uh, let's take another quick break. When we come back, it's time for Ask Alexi. Okay, welcome back. It's time for Ask Alexi, uh, that part of the show when you send in your comments, questions, and concerns. You can send them in on all the social media platforms that we have out there. Keep in mind that the handle is SOTU with Alexi. Use that hashtag, Ask Alexi. Or you can call into our State of the Union podcast hotline, which is 657-549-2297, 657-549-2297. Mossy, what do the folks want to know about this show? Uh, first up, Keith Gavette on X, formerly known as Twitter. To annoy your mom, I'm going to say that every time now. Um, <laughs> should Gio have any chance of being a starter for the U.S. at Copa America if he can't even get on the field for his club? Same goes for other possible starters if everyone is healthy. Okay, so years ago, uh, I, I I talked about the uh, the concept of, of form is fallacy. And, uh, you know, the late great Grant Wall used to always take me to task about this. Um, but I think in the back of his mind, he also understood what I was, uh, what I was talking about uh, in an ideal setting for any national team coach, you would look out there and you would see all of your players, whether it's your first 11 or your first or, or your next 11, uh, backups, if you will, playing week in and week out and obviously playing well. But if, and when there comes a point where a player isn't playing, we've already talked about in this case, we're, we're talking about Geo, but we've talked about Tim Ream or Matt Turner, and the list goes on and on and on. That does not preclude them from not only starting, but also playing well. And that's where the, the, the form is fallacy thing. It is a very, very different environment off the field and on the field with a club situation versus a national team. I think it is even more so when it comes to a culture like the American soccer culture that a lot of the players that we have on the team, not all of them, but a lot of them have been birthed from. And that's why I say time and time again, I got a feel that for a lot of these players, one of their happiest moments is when they walk on that plane to go to play with the national team and not just because they have a, a belief and a reverence um, and a pride to represent their country. There's, there's all of that, but just it's, it, it's so different, I think, than what they are experiencing at all of their, uh, uh, their different clubs uh, around the world. As it pertains to, to Gio Reyna, we talk each and every week almost about Gio Reyna. And I think it's warranted because of the talent that he has. And this gets also back into, you know, the, the fact that nobody should feel that their position is secure. But until somebody comes along that is of equal or better value uh, when it comes to Geo, whether that person is playing in club or not, I think you're going to find a way for Geo to be on the field. And we've already seen because this isn't something new, what he's going through now at Dortmund. This is months and months and months. You could even argue years 
where he is not in favor. That he has been able to come back and play for the national team and make an impact. So should he have a chance to be a starter, to your point, Keith? Absolutely. And every coach publicly will talk about, hey, you know, you got to be playing. You got to be playing. And it's really, really important to your, your club form and all that kind of stuff. But when it really comes down to it, there are some players that are beyond their club form. And I think Gio is one of those. And therefore, that's why oftentimes form is fallacy when it comes to uh, national team players. Mossy, anything else? Next up, uh, Apple podcast question at KAC443. This is a hypothetical question. Oh, okay. Uh, since the Qatar World Cup was in one general area, if FIFA asked you what one city would you want the U.S. to play all of their games for the 2026 World Cup, which city slash stadium would you choose and why? That's amazing. I mean, we were uh, a year ago, we were in Qatar. And it was a World Cup unlike any World Cup that, uh, that I've experienced for a number of different reasons, not the least of which was the proximity. And in that sense, it was, it was incredible. It was awesome. And we've talked before about how the, that is not going to happen in the future when it comes to World Cup. As a matter of fact, it's going the completely opposite way with multiple countries hosting and therefore multiple cities, oftentimes, like I said, in different countries, taking planes as opposed to in Qatar where nobody went anywhere. If you looked at the United States, so from, an in, from a practical perspective, infrastructure, you would look at someplace like Los Angeles or I guess the New York metropolitan area, maybe a Texas type of situation. I think he's asking for um, a city. So I know Texas would be kind of the, I guess, the Dallas-Fort Worth area, which I know is going to play a big part going forward in, uh, in World Cups. But it would probably have to be Los Angeles with the amount of stadiums. I mean, you're looking at obviously the big ones when it comes to SoFi, the Coliseum, and the Rose Bowl, but then you also have Dignity Health and I guess it's BMO now for LAFC and then numerous other college types of stadiums and stadia, I guess it is. So I think that not only could LA do that, but with the weather and with the history and with the existing infrastructure, that's, that's why I think it would be uh, LA. Mossy, what about you? I agree. Yeah? LA, no brainer. I'm trying to think of other places out there that we didn't mes- mention. There's not a lot of places like Midwestern types of things. Like I said, I, you know, Dallas is big and it has, we know the, that not just college football, but high school football is big. And some of those stadiums that they have, I guess, could accommodate some of these uh, World Cup games in this hypothetical that we are, uh, that we are having. But it, it's, it's, never, it's never going to happen again like we saw in Qatar. I mean, even the Saudi Arabia World Cup that's being anticipated, it's a much, much bigger type of country. And did you see that, uh, that they're possibly going to find a way to play that in the summer uh, in Saudi oh, Arabia? There's interesting. A, yeah, there's, there was an article I was reading the other day. Uh, who knows? I mean, just roof the entire country and off we go with the AC. Incidentally, the uh, Club World Cup gets underway tomorrow. We're taping this on Monday in Saudi Arabia. The so last it, of this version. Yes, of the club. you'll kind of get a feel for what 
World Cup games look like in those stadiums. Um, the Saudi Arabian representative is Al Itihad, which is a club managed by Marcelo Gallardo, f- featuring Karim Benzema, N'Golo Kante, Fabinho. Uh, you obviously have Manchester City, who are the favorites. Fluminense, Leon, who, as we know, won CCL. They beat LAFC in the final. So, yeah, uh, another Club World Cup is upon us. The games are available on Fox Sports, so check that out. We'll talk about that in our next couple of pods. I mean, I tweeted this out the other day, but you know, the next potentially five years when it comes to soccer in the United States um, you know, could be, well, I think they're going to be incredible, but they could be even more incredible if you look at you know, next summer, obviously, with uh, with Copa America. You mentioned the Club World Cup. So Club, Copa America in 2024. Uh, 2025 comes to uh, Club World Cup and uh, a Gold Cup. Uh, 26, obviously, big daddy of them all with the Men's World Cup. And then potentially in 27 with the uh, the Women's World Cup. Uh, we know the bid now yeah. with the U.S. and Mexico has been submitted. And they're going to make a lot of money. That was big news the last few days. You've got officially U.S. and Mexico bidding. Brazil, and then there's a European, uh, Germany, Holland, Belgium uh, bid. Oh, there you go. There you go. So this is what we potentially are looking forward to. And I didn't even mention the Olympics in 28, speaking of Los Angeles hosting big, uh, big types of athletic events. So that would that would be a hell of a scrumptious half decade, I guess you will, of soccer uh, and summers of soccer. So be the third Olympics in Los Angeles. I believe that ties London and Paris for the most that city is hosted. So yeah, lots to look forward to. Lots to look forward to. Um, we, we had another question, but I wanted to move it to my one for the road because I think it, it hits on a lot of the things that we have and continue to talk about when it comes to American soccer and you know who we are and how we think about soccer going forward. So let's save that for the uh, one for the road, shall we? Yep. All right, let's take a quick break. And like I said, we'll come back with uh, one for the road. Okay, welcome back. It's the end of our show. And at the end of each and every show, I give you my one for the road. Uh, I got a question over there on the X machine, Mossy, and it, and it plays into a lot of the things that we, uh, that we talk about here. And uh, I, I think it's Clout, Clout Dracula, at Clout Dracula, uh, asked, why are we as Americans obsessed with making Major League Soccer a top league? I've never seen, say, Belgians or the Dutch, et cetera, going on about what needs to change for them to compete with the top five. Uh, you know, this gets to the core of, I think, what we are and what we should be when it comes to how we think about soccer. And while it can, in this case, he's asking about MLS, I think it could be applied to a lot of different things. The reason, Clout Dracula, is because as Americans, we expect the best and we don't settle, even if it's not something that we invented, like the beautiful game. And I do think that this is ingrained in our psyche and in our culture and in our history. And you can call it competitive fire or hubris or American exceptionalism, but it has helped make us great as a country and as a culture, and I would have it no other way. And while your question is specific to Major League Soccer, and what it really comes down to is if something is worth doing, it's worth at least attempting to be the best at. And while you're absolutely right when it comes to the Dutch or the Belgians, I think that they have settled for their lot that we're never going to be the EPL or the others. And they're fine with that. And that's fine for them if that's how they want to go about their, let's be honest, their business. But when it comes to Major League Soccer and soccer in the United States, and this applies also to the national team, we want to be something more. We want to be 
the best. If we're going to have a professional soccer league, uh, like Major League Soccer, almost into 30 years of existence, you should aim at the highest. You should aim at the best. You should aim to be the best professional American soccer league uh, and then the pro- best professional soccer league in the world. And, I, and again, I don't think that there is anything wrong with that. In the same way that when Greg Berhalter, the head coach of the national team, approaches the men's national team playing in the World Cup in 2026, it should not be just to compete. It should not be to settle. It should be to attempt to do something that hasn't been done before, to do something that many people say you can't do or believe that you can't do. And that is, from a men's perspective, to win the World Cup. And people are going to laugh at you. And people like Clout Dracula here are going to say, well, why don't you just be happy with what you have? Why don't you, in essence, settle? And I hope, for the sake of not just of our sport, but our country, that we never settle. That we never say, this is enough. That we are always pushing. And you know what? You might not get there. But if you're pushing and going further ahead uh, and making progress to that ultimate goal, that's what's important. But if you don't state that, both publicly and privately, state that public goal of being the best, then I think it's very, very difficult for you to ever be. And I think, you know, the, uh, you know, I guess the, uh, the burden of, of low expectations is something that we as a country and we as a soccer-playing nation need to constantly be vigilant and uh, in terms of seeing and recognizing and to the extent that we can, avoiding it. I don't want to settle. And I know American soccer is a very different type of animal because of our history, because of our culture, because of all the competition, because soccer has not been king in our country. But that in no way, shape, or form uh, should say that we can't aspire to be the best and to have the best league in the world. And yes, for some point, maybe that migration to happen uh, and the migration, not just physical migration of players to come over here, but also the migration of the way people think about, in this case, MLS. And that should apply to anybody. And that is, as I said, one of the reasons why I think this country has been great and done great things and done things that people said could not be done. Uh, And if we lose that, I think we lose a lot. Mossy. A couple things before we go. Uh, The Liga MX final is set. It'll be Tigres against America, which should be great. Uh, The games are Thursday and Sunday. Uh, Also, I know... uh, Judy Boyd and Brad Zager find it funny when we talk about sports other than soccer on this podcast. But I have to ask you, yeah. have you been following some of this baseball hot stove stuff? Did you see the contract that the Dodgers gave to Otani? Mr. Otani is going to be making a, a lot of money. And he's, I guess he's not bringing his, uh, his services to Los Angeles because he's already here, right? So he doesn't have to move. And they're going to pay him a tremendous amount of money. But Ten- he's a, he does the pitching and the hitting, right? Although he... Just had elbow surgery. Oh. Uh, evidently, in 2024, he's not going to pitch, just hit. So oh. they, we won't see but the he's pitcher still good Otani. Enough to, even if just as a hitter, he's worth that. Well, beginning in 2025, he'll presumably do both again, but just for one season. Uh, wow. But yeah, it's a 10-year, $700 million deal. Well, you know, our uh, American pastime of baseball obviously is uh, is fine. We don't have to worry about it. Rumors of its demise have been the, uh, greatly exaggerated. Yankees traded for Juan Soto, and now the Yankees 
Dodgers and Aaron Schechter's Mets are all pursuing this Japanese pitcher, Yamamoto. He, oh. He's like the next big shoe to drop. So does this make him the highest paid athlete in the world? I know oftentimes when they do these lists, the uh, auto drivers are really high yeah. when, it, uh, when it comes to them. So, I mean, this, this, he's probably making more than Mbappe and those types of players, right? Yeah, I'm not sure. I'd have to okay. look into that. But yeah. Although I, Saudi Arabia involved now. You never yeah. know <laughs> with what's happening over yeah. there. Yeah. Oh my! Well, congratulations to him. Listen, if you can get it, get it. Uh, and the fact that I even know who he is um, probably says a lot about how much he has transcended the, uh, the sport. And now he's got a lot of money. Anything before we go? That's it. All right. Thank you to everybody. Thank you. Special thanks to again to Doug McIntyre for joining us here on this pod. We'll be back again later on this uh, this week. Keep reviewing. Keep downloading. Keep rating. Keep subscribing. Keep doing all those different things you do, whether it's listening or, in many cases, watching over there on YouTube and Spotify now and all the different uh, platforms that we have out there. Keep sending us in those questions, comments, and concerns, either uh, using that hashtag AskAlexi on the social media platforms or with our State of the Union podcast hotline. Again, 657-549-2297. We will talk to you again later on this week. And until then, and as always, my friends, size the Yeah.